For January 30th, 2017, it's the Overthinking It podcast, episode 448, Hidden Figures, the people who weren't in the right stuff. Welcome to Overthinking It, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it probably doesn't deserve. The Overthinkers are your smart, funny friends from the internet, and we are never happier than when we're hanging out together and talking about the things we love, the things that interest us. This week, we start uh, a little mini-series on uh, on the Oscar-nominated films with Hidden Figures, uh, the, the story of three women working for NASA uh, around the time of the first manned uh, uh, spaceflight in the in the united states um with john glenn and uh it is uh up for a whole bunch of awards this year we're very excited to uh, talk about it we hope you've seen it um if you haven't seen it don't worry too much like as stories of this sort go it's pretty formulaic it's not i mean there's it uh, i'm not sure it breaks a whole bunch of new ground narratively so i don't think your experience will be impoverished uh, and it may actually be enriched by listening to us uh, talk about it. Uh, but first, let's introduce the panel. We have with us Overthinkers Pete Fenzel. Hello, Pete. Hello, Matthew. And we have Mark Lee. Hey, Mark, what's going on? You know, all kinds of stuff's going on. <laughs> speaking all of, kinds of stuff. Speaking of which, we start every week with a question of the week for our panel. This week, panel question... Who is the most recent uh, uh, immigrant among your direct ancestors, immigrant to the United States? Uh, we all three of us were born here, so uh, uh, we might have to go up the tree a ways to um, uh, to find one. But let's uh, let's talk about them now and uh, just tell a little bit of the story of how they uh, how they arrived on our shores. First, in the alphabet, drink. It's Pete Fenzel. Hey, hey, thanks very much, Matt. So the Fenzels, now most of my background is Irish, and you can, some of my relatives have been here since like the Civil War, uh, but I have a bunch of relatives who came in my great-grandparents' generation. So not that far back, right? Three generations back. Uh, the one who is the most eponymous would be uh, Adolf Alfred Fenzel. Yeah, the name was more in fashion at the time than it is now for reasons that are obvious if you've read a Harry Turtledove book uh, or anything else involving <laughs> World War II. So, uh, but, but Adolf Alfred Fenzel, <laughs> I'm just assuming that's your baseline for understanding the Second World War. Uh, but is, uh, is he, he came to the United States as a, as a three-year-old boy in uh, 1884. His father was a factory worker. And uh, this, the, sort of the family story is that the family was scared about the imperial ambitions of Otto von Bismarck and as such didn't want the sons of the family to end up conscripted into the Prussian armies. The family, the Fenzels, lived near Berlin. Uh, they knew that they were going to be kind of part Prussia's imperial ambitions to take over Germany. And so they left uh, Germany and moved to the United States to the New York area, where they proceeded to then serve in the military for the next, uh, you know, 50 years <laughs> in the Spanish-American War, World War One, World War II, so on and so forth. Uh, but yeah, but Adolf Alfred Fenzel, also known uh, in some circles as Grandpa Fenzel, um, was, and he's also, uh, the, the secret about him that I didn't learn until I was a teenager is that despite all my other relatives being Catholic, he was Lutheran. What? Crazy. What? What? Some families have secrets. 
<laughs> well, it's okay, Pete. This, this is a, a safe space to share your secrets <laughs> with us and the rest of the internet. Thank you yeah. so much for, for trusting us enough to uh, tell us the secret of your Lutheran. Uh, what, did you say one great grandfather or two greats grandfather? I just, just the one. one the rest great. are from either Bavaria or Ireland. So ah. mostly, mostly Catholic. Excellent. Um, yeah, I have a, I have a uh, similar situation. I have uh, German ancestry, but they're all Bavarian, so they are uh, they're all Catholic Germans. Uh, next in the alphabet, we have Mark Lee. I have a feeling you're going to be a little closer than either Peter or me. Yeah, uh, my parents are immigrants to the United States. Uh, they're no longer with us, uh, so Ooh, I am. I mean, no, no, I I'm, shared for the first thing, not the second. Thing. I'm so sorry. Oh my God, I'm so sorry. This is getting off to a great start. <laughs> Super am, sensitive, I, Fenzel. That's that's good. that's that's the that's the kind of sensitivity that Grandpa Fenzel was known for, right? <laughs> no, I'm sorry. I won't speak ill of. I you see now. I now I did it too. All right. Go, moving on. So we, we could probably fill an entire podcast though, with, with my, my parents' history. Uh, it's a fascinating one. Uh, they came to the United States from South Korea in the mid to late 70s. Uh, my mother, I think, was the primary driver of the immigration uh, to study nursing in the United States. And my dad was along for the ride, believe it or not. Uh, my mother studied nursing, of all places, in rural Georgia. And uh, you can imagine in the 70s, there were not a lot of Asian folk in that part of the country or really in the United States at all. But um, this being um, in the 70s, this is about a decade after the Immigration and Nationality Act of 1965 was passed, which lifted um, uh, national quotas on immigration, which, of course, a lot of people are talking about these days. And it allowed my parents the opportunity to come to the United States and Georgia, of all places, where uh, they managed to make a life for themselves and their children, uh, I mean, having all sorts of funny cross-cultural uh, 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 experiences like you know, trying to find kimchi in the rural south and, and nearly setting the trailer on fire by cooking, um, when cooking bacon for the first time. These are things that actually happen, folks. Uh, and I am here to tell their story, or at least that part of it, because, like I said, we could do an entire podcast on them, but that's not what we're here to talk about. Well, but wait, immigrants, yeah, we get the job done. Wait, wait. I've... <laughs> Uh, yas Hamilton, yas Hamilton. Um, but wait, uh, where do you find kimchi in the rural South? We can't let this pass without without figuring that out. When it's you know when it's the seventies, where do you find kimchi in the world? So at, South? Le- at least in Birmingham, Alabama, where we moved uh, in the late eighties and and you know spent the nineties there, there was one Korean grocery store there. Uh, but actually, no. If you're in Savannah or, or Augusta, Georgia. I think Atlanta, Georgia, is the closest place to get kimchi. Aside from your backyard, if you're making it yourself by throwing together whatever ingredients you can. So, like I said, immigrants get the job done. In this case, the job being eating kimchi. Well, what, wait, wait, why didn't they just go down the street to the artist, uh, the artisanal farmers market that was clearly, you know, in every city in all of America forever and ever? Right? Haven't things always been as they are? You know, they they, uh, they they didn't have the right app installed on their phone, which told them where the artisanal <laughs> right. grocer was in their I, neighborhood. I buy kimchi because from a, but you know why? Because they didn't speak English. <laughs> I buy kimchi from a nice white lady in Culver City. <laughs> Um, my, uh, my, uh, just to answer for myself, my mother's family are from, uh, Germany and Poland, but they actually, um, are several generations old. There's, there's a story about great, great grandma Subek, uh, like walking across, across the continent of Europe, like pregnant with one child with another child in her hand, uh, and like stowing away on a ship. I'm not sure how much these have been embellished by time and family legend, but this is the, this is, you know, this is sort of uh, what we hear. And and on my uh, maternal grandfather's side, um, 
Polish potato farmers, uh, hardy, hardy peasant stock. Um, but, uh, I'll, I'll take the opportunity to tell my, uh, to tell the story of, of my, um, uh, father's mother's, uh, side of the family. Uh, there, my, uh, Two greats grandmother uh, is supposed to have been a ballerina, and her daughter uh, Rosina Tamponi uh, was, I believe, her name, a vaudevillian dancer, like a chorus girl, who met um, my great grandfather uh, Bernard, uh, known as Bunny Granville, um, French, uh, in uh, New York, in in the vaudeville at like the Follies. Uh, and they married and they traveled to Los Angeles for his film career or to start a film career for him. Um, and that was not successful. But they ended up having a daughter, my grandmother, uh, with the improbable half French, half Italian name of Bonita Granville, who was... Uh, an actress. So, uh, actually on, on the, and, and was like fancy and stuff. And like on, on, on the fancy side of the family, more recently immigrated to the United States than on the Irish, you know, uh, not, <laughs> sorry, Irish and potato are in a, are a, like Pavlovian association in my mind for me. The Polish potato, uh, the, the superior of the two potatoes, uh, the Polish potato farmer. What? What? <laughs> This is exactly what I hoped to to foment on this podcast, which was a a uh, European was like a battle of white guy against white guy. Uh, over I the- know that I know that it, the history of immigration is a topic of much harmony, but you're about to provoke a small amount of discord in this otherwise very harmonious conversation. <laughs> anyway, not throwing potato shade like it's nothing, <laughs> like it's nothing. It's uh, yeah, throwing potato shade is is easier than throwing potatoes. That's that's for sure because that. Tuber is a hearty and uh, a, a hearty and robust um, robust crop, uh, un- unless there's a potato famine. Right. What? Um, no, my, the point I was trying to make was that that it seems to me that the fancy side of my the fancy side of my family, uh, being my father's side, is actually more recently immigrated. Um, is sort of less uh, fewer generations of uh, uh, Americans born here than my uh, uh, than my mother's side, who are all who were you know simple peasant folk um, on both her mother on on both her German mother and her Polish. Polish father's side. Anyway, uh, these are the people in our family trees. Um, it, it also struck us that, that another way we could have gone with this question is to talk a little bit about fictional, um, fictional immigrants and who is your favorite immigrant in all of fiction. And before we get to hidden figures, it might make sense to, to spend a little time on that. We realized that right away we would have to take Superman off the table. That you couldn't talk about Superman as your favorite, uh, your favorite fictional immigrant um, to the planet Earth or to the United States of America. Fortunately, like uh, as it does with most things, Wikipedia has a list that is totally on point, which is a list of of fictional immigrants to the United States. Uh, we'll put a link to that in in the show notes. But but we spent a minute going down this rabbit hole and examining. Um, Examining what they, uh, what what our answers might be. I don't know, Pete. Did anything jump out to you as uh, as a favorite uh, or a particularly interesting fictional immigrant to the United States? 
Well, the one that really jumped out at me, and people might expect me to talk about Dragon Ball, but I'm going to put that aside for a moment because then you get into very complex ideas of kind of future history and and uh, mythology and things like that. Is is Angel from Buffy the Vampire Slayer? Right. Think about Angel. Right. Uh, Angel. If there's any sort of uh, screening of people who could potentially be problems. Angel never comes to the United States, right? Never meets Buffy, never does any number of the critically important things uh, in, in, the, in the stories of Buffy the Vampire Slayer and so forth. Uh, it never comes to be liked or loved by any of the people who come to like or love him. All that stuff about souls and such, right? Uh, it's interesting that uh, when you're thinking about Angel, because I don't think about Angel as an immigrant, right? Because because David Boreanaz doesn't really seem like he, he is he is the least exotic of the of the fictional vampires that I can think of, right? Even less exotic than like Kate Beckinsale, who is also like fairly like straight down the middle as far as leather clad vampires are. But like David Boreanaz is kind of like the beer bars vampire, right? Uh, a little bit, uh, you know, he's not like Antonio Banderas in the crypts of Louisiana. Or, you know, if you look at interview with the vampire in the 90s as kind of a measure of vampirical exoticism, David Boreanaz seems to be a pretty American vampire, and yet he's not. He's the least American uh, of, well, there's some interview with vampire characters. I don't think Lestat's American, and they immigrated too. But but the point being that the struggle that he goes through in the the shows that he's in, right, uh, run the gamut between the 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 very fantastical and also the somewhat pedestrian. One of which being that he is a proprietor of a small business, right? Which is not focused on. It's not focused on, as I as I recall, right? Throughout Angel, Angel is running a, a private detective agency, right. and Cordelia is his main as administrative support, right? And like in terms of being an office manager and kind of accounts payable and receivable and things like that. But I don't remember a lot of stories that centered around like the difficulty of Angel paying his bills. Right. Or like keeping the doors open. Of course, it was a long time since I watched that show. Um, But then you have that whole idea of like, well, which soul, you know, which which self am I? Am I am I the am I the sort of foreign self that is that everyone is scared of? Right. And which I, too, am scared of, which is interesting, right, Uh, to think about it in that context, because there's like sort of an internalization there of kind of other people's ideas in the story. Like what I'm sort of saying is that in the story of the vampire, right, in, in Dracula, in all of it, there a lot of it. And you think about it sort of Bram Stoker's Dracula. A lot of it is about being scared of the specter of kind of deep continental Europe. Right. From the standpoint of Ireland and the British Isles more broadly. Right. And this idea that all of it's sort of old history and it's kind of like old uh, sort of bloody uh, sort of thousands of years of mysterious blood bloodletting of various sorts and just sort of harsh vendettas of a sort that are very foreign to our happy Green Isle. And it's plentiful crops that we don't get to eat but have to export. Uh, potato famine joke. Uh, but the, the point being that, like, there's an exoticization of places like Transylvania as this place where there are strange foreigners that are going to co- sort of come in and it's sexualized, right? And it's predatorialized to invent a word, right? And then that kind of spans over to American ideas of kind of vampires as foreigners. And, and when I think about a vampire who assimilated, right, who like showed a real desire to be kind of part of the culture, and I, I don't want to say that assimilation is uh, assimilation has changed a lot in its sort of pejorative versus um, positive connotation in kind of my realm of words since I was a kid, right? Like, and that's not to say that that it was ever anything strictly good or strictly bad about it, but it sort of seems like now you say it and you mean something strictly bad. I would venture to say that Angel is happier as an American than he was in Europe. 
for a bunch of reasons that maybe don't have to do with America, but certainly have to do with change. Right. Right. Um, yeah. And, and I mean, I'm going through a lot here and I just I just feel like there's a lot of stuff happening. I don't think I don't think that the pieces with regards to Angel are arranged in a way that matches the sort of credible experience of a real life immigrants or people encountering them. But it's interesting to see those pieces kind of shattered about and kind of rearranged. Right. Well, in I, sort of these ideas of fear. Right? Yeah, I, I think that I, I think that the, the thing here is that the the sort of the Whedon-esque uh, vampire metaphor Right, which is that kind of vampirism or the kind of the the occult generally is a metaphor for like adolescent boys, you know, right. uh, and that that it sort of takes a, a superhuman girl uh, like Buffy to to navigate the world of uh, adolescent male sexuality is different from the Dracula era metaphor of vampirism, which was either about as you say um, the kind of the specter of of continental. Europe, the kind of the age, the the decrepitude uh, of that, or else I feel like there there's also a class based construction that you could put on it, which is about Dracula the aristocrat literally sucking the blood out of the English middle, the new English middle class, uh, like right. uh, Harker, um, uh, uh, Jonathan Harker, right. That sorry, I, that was reaching deep. So someone will actually me if if I got the name. Well, wrong. actually, it's Keanu Reeves. But go on. <laughs> um, Keanu Reeves is a lawyer, right? He's a <laughs> Keanu he's, Reeves is a lawyer. He always is. I'm uh, a lawyer. That's my job. That's what I do. Uh, That's a different movie. We're sorry. coming out, guns blazing, and the the. Um, Right, like he's part of a he's part of a, a non aristocratic he's part of a middle class he's part of a professional class which is a new uh, sort of industrious thing um, in uh, in nineteenth century Europe and that uh, that the sort of the specter of the uh, the specter of the the upper class is kind of extracting from them their blood, you know, their productivity, their uh, vitality, uh, you know, whatever. It's a it's it's almost a, a sort of socialist construction that you could uh, put on the metaphor of vampirism in that in that. Uh, that particular context, whereas it's a different, I mean, it's a different sort of thing. Um, it's a different sort of thing, right? Whereas like Dracula-esque vampires have to be eradicated in a kind of revolutionary political program of, of uh, uh, you know, of extermination, <laughs> you know, uh, uh, Whedon-esque vampires have to be managed, you know, and that's right. a different. There's a sort of uh, there's a different thing. I, I would actually propose that this is not. Um, uh, not actually that far. The idea of kind of extracting value, uh, the vampires sucking the life and the blood and the the uh, economic vitality out of uh, out of a country is is actually not that that uh, is perhaps apropos of the discourses that that are happening. Yeah, well, it's, today. it's of a piece of the kinds of horrific fears that accompany the subject matter. Yeah, right. Like, like I, it's hard to say because you don't want to endorse these as being like wise ways of thinking about the world, right? And you don't want to endorse them as like you know as like oh this is this is sort of this is well accurate or wise, right? Because you know the more you learn about well certainly all of us. Uh, our, our droplets, right? Our blood droplets, because we're all we're all from immigrants too. Um, and, but but the point being that like that in in fiction, it's interesting to look at fictional characters 
And one of the things that fictional, okay, I think I have it. One of the things that fictional characters betray about the culture of the reaction to the notion of the immigrant is that there is a huge chasm between the fictional characters who represent the immigrant experience and the fictional characters who represent the the sort of uh, the otherized view of the immigrant. Right. And I, and I think that that Angel jumped out to me because he does both. But the but the gap is huge. And I yeah, and yes, I think that that it's it's sort of um, the degree to which he does the latter is through the lens of the sort of sexual other of male adolescence from the standpoint of female adolescence as written about by male middle age. Which all of this needs to be put as a caveat for a lot of it. But it's interesting to think that like Angel, the sort of beleaguered small business owner who is like, you know, oh, I can't go out during the day. It's so inconvenient. I have to work these long hours. But, you know, I'm making it work. And you never get the sense that Angel ever really sort of questions whether he's working harder than he needs to, right? Like he 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 knows that his life is going to be challenging. He's taken on this challenge. That to me seems very authentic to sort of a first person. Again, I can't speak for it. I'm I'm more from the Whedon standpoint of somebody speaking about somebody speaking about somebody. But but uh, that seems to me more about a first person experience of being a stranger in a strange land, right? But the idea that he's like, oh, you know, they gave away his soul and he's going to turn into a monster, and then he has an ex girlfriend who's also a monster right and like she's gonna show up and then you're gonna stop watching the show for a while then you're gonna come back and you're not gonna know anything that happened there's some guy named gun that he's kind of cool but you don't really understand him because you get the exposition like all that stuff right all that stuff is sort of in the third person idea of sort of American nativism, which has a weird habit of sort of in fruitcake like manner being passed from party to party. Right. Things sort of thrown down the line. Right. It's like these people get to be nativists. Now these people get to be nativists. Now these people get to be nativists. Everyone gets a turn uh, in the old whirly gig. Uh, but I just I just thought it was interesting in thinking about because well, when you think about Superman, right, Superman uh, is somewhat of a first person immigrant experience right because sure. there, superman doesn't think that he is strange right superman and that that's sort of the notable thing i think is that when it's you then you're not strange right like like the world might think that you're strange and that might make things difficult for you but you're normal because you're the only person that you ever knew right that's your life right and and it gets shocking to encounter people who don't think you're normal but but the idea of a character who is sort of like avowedly strange like of like like I am the strange one. I am the vampire. That's not that's across the chasm, right? That's like the gap in understanding. Like I don't actually know this person. I don't actually like identify with this person or have have like a close social relationship with them. And as such, I don't really get what it's like, even even in a sort of Uncle Cracker like respect, right? Uh, oh no, that's right. That's Everlast. I'm uh, I well actually myself there. Everlast, not Uncle Cracker. I don't really I. I do you really you might not know what it's like that song et cetera et cetera et cetera I don't know uh, I'll, I'll punt at this point because I've I've strewed a lot out there but I feel like the clunkiness with which Angel's character sort of barely holds together is a sign of the sort of irreconciled and certainly irreconciled it's not even like we tried to reconcile it right uh, like first person immigrant experience and then sort of third person nativist uh, indictment right uh, of the of the person who's coming in who might not belong here. Um, is is sort of an interesting interesting conundrum and goku is too stupid to understand any of those things himself so well he's not stupid he's just simple-minded i don't know mark what do you think <laughs> what do you well, think well I, I i think we should get talking about hitting figures pretty soon but oh. um, <laughs> in looking at the list of uh the fictional immigrants in the united states 
Um, this is a slightly different tank of what we we're talking about before, but the two names that most jumped out to me were uh, very much of the criminal element, right? You know, and not so much like you know the vampires being what like you know quasi mystical, supernatural, threatening type of things. Um, but these are straight up criminals. I'm talking, of course, about Vito Corleone and Tony Montana, um, who uh, also repetition- also Hannibal Lecter, by the way. Oh yeah, but but, but different different from where you're going, I think. Yeah, which is that, uh, you know, both of them share a lot of things in common, but diverge drastically uh, when you sort of spin out from beyond that. Right. You know, the the two of them uh, came to the United States with uh, with very few resources, did not have access to um, the mainstream economy and therefore turned to the criminal underworld uh, in order to gain riches and influence for themselves and did various various, uh, depraved things with the riches and influence that they acquired. Um, once you go from there, though, uh, you have very different uh, things going on, right? Tony Montana being just like a, a complete animal, a complete monster, and Vito Corleone representing, um, I guess, what you could be argued as a more genteel outlook or more understanding outlook on the outcast immigrant who um, who turns to whatever means necessary to survive and to protect his family. But um, uh, I don't know how much there was a reading when, when, when those two names in particular jump out at me. Um, you know, our, our American pop culture is diverse enough to house both criminals like Tony Montana and Vito Corleone, uh, very different criminals, uh, but criminals nonetheless, as well as heroes um, like Superman, um, like Fievel, um, like um, like um, um, uh, like um, uh, why am I blanking on the the shopkeeper's name from The Simpsons? Apu. Um, other, other... <laughs> I thought you were going to say Optimus Prime. It is but, it uh... is pronounced Nasapina Petalon. How how hard is it to you know just as it's spelled? Yeah, but uh, you know those are at, if nothing else, they are the most lurid, right? Uh, especially Tony Montana, uh, among the most lurid depictions of immigrants, and you know they really their their otherness trickles out into um, uh, you know the the otherness of their depraved acts against society. Um, uh, you know, and, and not that the society that they're committing depraved acts against is, is purely, you know, the mainstream, you know, uh, or native society that it's, it's committed against all, but it gets wrapped up into the entire package. Mm. Well, now from our uh, our um, heteroglossic, uh, uh, multi-ethnic, polyglot past to our uh, triumphalist Americana past. <laughs> <laughs> let's let's turn to hidden figures uh an oscar contender contender this year in uh i believe the uh the uh uh three oscars uh, best picture best adapted screenplay and best uh supporting actress for octavia uh octavia spencer and the uh the the subject of the film is um three nasa uh, 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 mathematician, uh, the three NASA workers who are African American women in the early 1960s. Uh, one a mathematician, one an engineer, and one an administrator uh, turned uh, spoiler alert turned computer programmer, uh, played by uh, Taraji P Henson, um, uh, played by uh, Octavia Spencer and Janelle Monae, and uh, this is a, a and it's it's sort of a it's a film that does a lot of things it's an adaptation of of a book um it's up against a lot of things uh 
uh, representationally. And uh, to its credit, I think it manages to uh, keep a lot of balls in the air thematically by by sort of um, by sort of uh, uh, aligning the various strands of the plot. There's there's a point at which uh, uh, the um, uh, the NASA uh, tough head scientist guy played by Kevin Costner says to his subordinate played by Jim Parsons from the Big Bang Theory, uh, listen, uh, we all we all rise together or we all fall together. We're all in this together. And I thought, ah, OK, there's the there's the whole message of the um, uh, there's the whole message, because the, the idea of a sort of heroic biopic uh, that that really focuses on the kind of extraordinary individual characteristics of a single person um, is an interesting is an interesting thing to set against the 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 backdrop of a story that's about social progress and against the backdrop of a story that's about scientific progress which are all more sort of collective um collective activities so with that uh you know i don't know with that uh i i'll uh, turn it to turn it over to you two pete you were very excited uh by hidden figures when when you saw it and were were eager that we should talk about it um did i uh did i hit on what was interesting to the about you to the film or were there still further dimensions uh that struck you as being the most important or the most interesting about hidden figures well to downshift and catch the teeth in a lower gear here and really kind of uh, get get up over the hill, uh, that metaphor, I spun it out too elaborately. Hidden Figures is nominated for Best Picture at the Oscars, right? Hidden Figures is a really good movie that will probably not win Best Picture at the Oscars um, because Hidden Figures is, as you mentioned, it's a historical drama, melodrama even, uh, wherein if you were to take away a lot of the context would be very similar to a lot of movies that you've seen before, right? It's, it's, it's a movie that doesn't really strive to, um, to shake off or resist the things that have worked about other movies. Uh, it is a movie that is, is very comfortable in the realm of sentimental emotion, uh, that that is also okay with making you feel good about things, and that is willing to kind of cast doubt or cast you know do do what might be described as problematize without confounding the sort of central uh, uh, what what might be termed by a, a communist as the culinary sense of it. Right, the degree to which this is a movie that you see and you hope to sort of get something out of it. Um, and which a communist would object to because this is sort of insufficiently zealous in reforming civilization and the revolution and all that stuff, right? Like, no, 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 this is a movie, this is a movie that is very much about uh, being entertaining, feeling good, having a sound message that a lot of people can get on board with, having pieces that a lot of people can see. It's also more on the NCIS Los Angeles side of like the NCIS Los Angeles, the wire, uh, uh, access, right? <laughs> in that it is a movie that proceeds a little slower in broader strokes with characters whose motivations are pretty clear, right? Uh, telling you what's happening while it's happening so that there is no ambiguity about what is important in any given scene. This is not a movie that is meant to be difficult to watch, 
right? This is a movie that is meant to invoke powerful feeling. Uh, and 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 the thing that is that is especially useful, not useful, useful is the, the communist way of putting it. But the thing that is particularly kind of enlightened and enlightening about the movie is the way that it does transpose context. Right. Because you, you could say, you know, oh, you could take the right stuff and just make them all black and then it would work. And it wouldn't. Right. Because there's a lot of context. You can't just pretend that uh, when the space program was happening, that all the astronauts got to be black, right? I mean, you could make that as sort of like a hypothetical, but within it is the wound of the fact that it didn't happen that way. I mean, right? that sounds like the Hamilton sequel, uh, <laughs> Astronauts well, yeah. Hamilton I mean, that, in Space. I, I, mean, I would that, watch that's... the hell out of that. But, yeah. <laughs> I mean, but when Hamilton is doing that, Hamilton is is doing it in sort of a meta, self-conscious sort of way. At least a little bit, right? Yeah, you, like, I mean, your point is yeah. you couldn't make a melodrama about you know about that that is kind of unreflective about issues of representation, right? Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, the, the idea of like making a meta making a meta historical story which points out that things didn't happen this way, right? As Hamilton does by making everyone a rapper, which was not how it happened, right? Like uh, as well as not like not only is are they are they changing the ethnic representation, they're changing like the lexical and the, and the cultural and the lyrical representation, right? There's like huge issues of representation that Hamilton is engaged with in kind of fun ways, but no, Hidden Figures is saying, well, what story? can we tell that will come about and invoke a similar sort of feeling and put and position people in a similar sort of dignified sense of triumph right and a sense where like they get to, to be in a particular moral center of the film and in particular their success gets to be the moral center of the film right and that that to me is the way in which uh hidden figures engages with this idea of you know how how do we uh, uh, act from the status quo in such a way that that uh, either counterbalances or counteracts or at least does right by what we think we ought to do with regards to representation uh, without while, while, while also having this huge shadow hanging over us of everything that's come before, which makes it very difficult at times. Right. Um, so, yeah. So, so and, and sometimes is that that's one of the reasons why I think uh, movies that really engage in a powerful way with identity and race are often very hard to watch because the history of race in America is hard to watch. Like, you know, for, I mean, I would say for white people, right? Uh, but I mean, I won't generalize to everybody. I'll just say I find it hard to watch, right? Like watching Glory and watching Denzel Washington get whipped in Glory is not there to be easy to watch, right? And and it's and it's and like just making him the general wouldn't do justice right to anything that happened. But Hidden Figures finds a way to kind of have its cake and eat it too by telling a story that is legitimately something to be proud of, right? And, and that that does sort of manage to step out from under the shadow of all this pain. Now, of course, the movie acknowledges the pain. The movie the movie is smart enough to like say not everybody gets to be a brilliant computer whiz mathematician, right? That's a way out for some, but not for everybody, right? And also, it doesn't sort of disavow notions of social revolution and such that that would be found in more confounding sorts of works. But I mean, that was the main thing is that like this was a movie that when I saw it, I knew I could tell my whole family that it was good and they would see it and they would all love it, right? 
all of them. And, and everybody has a different perspective on, on history. Sure. Right? I um, mean, it's, it, for what it's worth, this is the film that, that – this is a film that actually kind of incorporates uh, aspects of this critique um, into its uh, – like into its story. Uh, the the uh, Mary Jackson character, the engineer, who's played by Janelle Monet, has a husband who is a much more radical – kind of freedom rider, uh, you know, much more engaged in the revolutionary politics of the time. And there is a, uh, a bit of a, uh, there's a bit of a disagreement um, between them as to what constitutes uh, progress and what constitutes sort of work for, what constitutes legitimate work for, uh, for equality and for, um, social improvement, right? And that's uh, and and she, because it's a melodrama, uh, the wife ends up winning. That kind of, <laughs> right. she's the protagonist. <laughs> she, well, I, yeah, I'm not sure who the protagonist is, right? Like th- there are uh, there are sort of several. It's really Taraji P Henson, um, but they all yeah. She's actually of the protagonists. She's the one who is. Well, I, I guess no. At the end, she she gets to be an engineer, but but not uh, not in the the like um, what I'm going to refer to as the body of the movie. It's in the future, right? Like she gets she wins a uh, uh, a court um, uh, a, a judicial decision allowing her to attend uh, classes at a segregated school, uh, and she gets to go to this all white night class. Um, the just to be clear, when you say that it's hard to know who the protagonist of this movie is, that is more in the style of like the Three Musketeers than in the style of like the Usual Suspects, right? Like there's there's no moral difficulty in identifying who is the people that are supposed to be the winners. It's just that there's more than one of them, right? It's right? it's like, it's yeah. Chaz Palminteri, right? It's yeah. just... <laughs> Chaz Palminteri is clearly the protagonist of the Usual Suspects, right? <laughs> yeah, because no, he's it's the three women fa- on the movie poster. That's who the, the people who are supposed well, to be the winners. Are. The, it's that kind of movie. I'm, I'm sorry, your your anyway. your your subject, object, and verb don't agree in number. That's my oh. that's my that's my point, right? Like when there's oh. a protagonist. Sorry, I'm like, a Catholic. It happens sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the the um, you know, it, it's a question as to sort of who is moving. Uh, who is moving the story forward, right? Like, like, and actually, that that is. You could argue that that Octavia Spencer is more more a protagonist uh, than Taraji P Henson because she is. Uh, she actually sort of does stuff like the the um, the Catherine Johnson character uh, played by Taraji P Henson is um, uh, kind of uh, doesn't always advocate for herself except in one sort of memorable scene where she's kind of pushed beyond the breaking point and uh stands up for herself a a little bit she just happens to be excellent at her job puts her head down and is excellent is better than anyone else uh uh in in the film and people around her uh recognize it or don't recognize it and that's a measure of their kind of moral moral worth um storytelling wise octavia spencer who is like a manager an administrator uh you know and and is like campaigning for a promotion most of the time uh and the janelle monet character who is trying to uh achieve a particular outcome which is to get led into a segregated school get to be allowed to take classes there um are actually doing more uh 
more advocacy. So like, so in a, in, in a weird way, I, I, I sort of want to problematize this. I want, I want to problematize the kind of the feel good aspects of this film because I'm Matt rather from the overthinking It podcast and it's my job to ruin your good time. Uh, but let's, uh, let's, let's hold off on that, but it's, it's, it's coming, you know, it's coming. As we dig into this, I mean, like, you know, we're talking about how the movie sets up the different characters and the roles and uh, and the Taraji P. Henson character in particular as as a protagonist. Right. I mean, like there there's some basic sort of kinetic aspects of this, which are worth pointing out. Right. Who gets to run in this movie? Taraji P. Henson. Right. You know, she runs back and forth from the from yeah, so uh, from the, the office of the bathroom. Yeah, she she yeah she has to right there. You go. She's the Tom Cruise. She has to run uh, to get to the the office. You know, for the pivotal scenes at the end. Um, who ascends? Right. Aside from the astronauts and the rockets, rockets in this movie, who ascends? Uh, Roger P. Henson climbs the ladder and literally, you know, draws the arc of the spaceship uh, up on the on the chalkboard. And so she has those kinetic. Um, aspects that that clearly define her as the as a protagonist is you know literally propelling the story forward, um, and of course you know there's the the, the pivotal scene towards the end uh, where John Glenn you know on the launch pad wants to speak to her directly to confirm the figures, um, which by the way is from what I understand uh, taken pretty closely from the pages of history and not something that they made up because it was uh, it would it would be kind of preposterous if they had made that up. Um, but you know, for all those reasons that I just mentioned before, um, you know, she is clearly framed out to be the the protagonist in this. But Matt, if I'm hearing you correctly, you're saying that uh, uh, the other characters um, what advance further or, or or like are are more important somehow in the overall mission, like. W- w- Restate that again, because uh, I, I want to problematize your problematization. I guess. <laughs> what I'm saying is that that uh, the the character Catherine Johnson, who is the the kind of the main figure among the main hidden figure among these three hidden figures, um, hid, hidden by whom though they're they're on the cover of a movie poster. Uh, the I think it's pretty clear they mean historically hidden, not like hidden in this movie. <laughs> Right, like, but anyway, continue. Sorry. Um, the the well, yeah. I mean, they they are the best kept secret that everybody knows about. Um, the, the I mean, isn't this your point, Pete? That the, the sort of the best kept secret. But anyway, um, the the uh, the things. What what are the things that she does to advance her aims, to advance her goals? in the film is it, mark is the point that i'm uh, the point that i'm trying to make i can point to things that that octavia spencer does she asks for a promotion she's denied she reads the landscape and realizes that she's going to that uh uh you know the calculating i mean they call them computers the the like the human calculation department is uh you know going to be automated out of existence and so she goes to the library and learns things that will place her well you know place her well in the in the new world order right that's a thing i can point to the janelle monet character uh files a lawsuit Right, sues the state in, in order to be allowed to attend school. That's a you know that's a thing that I can um, that's a thing that I can point to. Like uh, the Tarajbi Henson character is um, uh, more passive in terms of what what that character does. 
uh, other than beyond her job, right? Beyond be good at her job, uh, in order to forward her her objections, right? She's not right. like knocking on Kevin Costner's door saying that this is some bull crap. She's not, uh, you know. Um, Hang on, hang on, hang on. We're, we're forgetting two very important scenes in this movie. Uh, one is the impassioned "I need to use the bathroom" speech. That was the that um, was the one that that I said. She was pushed kind of beyond the breaking point. Okay, that's and, not, but yeah. no, but the, but the other one being uh, "I must attend this meeting," where she gets to do the math on the board, which leads John Glenn later on to to, to call her. So I, I hear you what you're saying, Matt, but um, it's not that she's entirely passive, right? She's just, I guess, she's if anything, she's slightly less active. In, or, in, or uh, more, in more, those acts than the yeah, other two characters, more reactive in, but in both of those in both of those cases, and I mean this like this is this is a weird rat hole to go down. I freely yeah, admit, yeah. but it's but it it has to do with the definition of protagonist, right? Uh, beyond just kind of main character of the movie, like I. Uh, it, forgive me if my my narratology is out of date, but I sort of think of that as the person whose actions drive the 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 plot of the movie, um, the plot of the movie forward. And it's it's and, and I guess it gets at the kind of ambiguity that I, that I uh, want to get at at the heart of this movie between individual heroism and kind of extraordinary people and their kind of extraordinary deeds and collective uh collective action collective progress um which i i sort of identify the the progress in civil rights and the uh progress in the space program as more sort of collective um uh, collective uh, actions and the, the 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 title hidden figures is a you know a reference to not only sort of the math that we uh, the math that we don 't know but also the the people who are kind of written out of that collective history the people who are not included in the collective uh, by virtue of their sex or by virtue of their uh, by virtue of their race um, yeah absolutely yeah, to, to add off that a little bit, I feel like an important note on this movie is to consider its context you have to consider it alongside the movie the right stuff i think that in particular if you put and the right stuff for those of you who are not familiar is uh it's that's a movie is that a movie about breaking the sound barrier right or but it also is about john glenn right and ed harris plays john glenn uh and all they have all the astronauts and stuff yeah, it's a lot of the same guys, so. and it's based so, on it's based on a book by uh, Tom Wolfe, a sort of new new journalism. Um, yeah, can you unpack so, new journalism for just a oh, second? Uh, yeah, so so the the um, if you think of kind of uh, late twentieth century or I guess late mid twentieth century, uh, Tom Wolfe, Hunter Thompson, Gay Talese, uh, like. Um, a uh, a sort of style of journalistic writing uh, that involved that that was a little less austere that involved the narrator in the the um, the story that they were telling that was a little more literary uh, uh, literarily ambitious uh, than uh, than perhaps previous journalism 
had been and uh you know that not that there aren't all kinds of problems with that sort of this sort of perspective shift but that sort of brought the eye of the writer into the uh, uh by which i mean like capital letter i not not you know organ i or like synecdoche i for the perspective of the writer but you know use the first person pronoun in the in the course of of writing and and, and um reporting some of the things that that uh, that they said i don 't know there would be a better uh, there would be a better um, definition of wikipedia and we'll certainly we'll certainly link to that but it is this it 's this sort of it 's this book about uh, uh, military test pilots um, in California and then le- later uh, in the mercury program um, and yeah ed Harris is in it for sure yeah and so if you look at the poster for the right stuff. Next, and there's a couple posters for the right stuff, but I'm thinking about the one that gets used for all the DVD cases and stuff, uh, and stuff, right? The poster for the right stuff, and you look at it next to the poster for Hidden Figures, there is an uh, there is an obvious parallel, right? Wherein and, and 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 the title of the movie, The Right Stuff, as well as the spirit in which I think it was offered, and also I feel like kind of a general spirit, particularly in the '80s around aeronautics. Uh, you think of Top Gun as a big example of this, is that, you know, even though we can think of something now as we discuss it kind of logistically and practically, like the space program as a collective effort, there is a huge emphasis in the culture put on the individual character of astronauts and pilots, right? Their courage, their grit, they can hang in there on the edge when nobody else can. They can do it, right? And if you look at the poster for the right stuff, you know, what do you see but seven awesome dudes right seven white astronauts right and they're the ones who have the right stuff and nobody else is pictured right and so when i look at the poster for hidden figures to me i see the i almost feel like the movie could be called the people who weren't in the right stuff right or who if they were in it did not have parts that were big enough because i don't remember them right uh and like they i think it is implied from and and maybe that's just me reading it in but even so i I would consider the interpretation to be culturally interesting right that it is implied that the women in hidden figures by the similarity between the two posters are being put forward as also having the strength of character comparable to astronauts right and i think that's something that's that's sort of uh, addressed in the movie as we meet the astronauts and they're these sort of awesome dudes and there's this sort of lovely little touch in the john glenn character in this movie where he's like very he seems not he seems he's very progressive and open and he'll talk to the black woman when nobody else wants him to right and it is and it is like he he's likable he's super likable and you're like oh it's john glenn he's an american hero but he's running for office right like like and that that is sort of an undercurrent for the entire thing and I didn't read it as sort of cheapening his niceness entirely, right? Or as sort of saying, oh, no, he's just trying to make friends with them because he's running for office. It's more like he's making friends with them, but he's also running for office, right? Which is important for understanding the perspective of the women in Hidden Figures who can't really – I mean, the the great shots uh, early on – oh, gosh, is it in the middle of the movie or so where where the people come out on the street – and they're looking at the TVs in the stores, uh, in the stores, right? Because they don't have their own TVs or they're not near their own houses to get the updates of what's happening to the astronauts, right? And there's this sort of strong case made that African Americans care about the astronauts, 
even though the astronauts are white people, right? Which is not the way that this movie might have been positioned, right? There's a lot of ways you could say, oh, you know, you could you could lean much harder on the idea of like those astronauts are just white people. They don't understand what our life is like. No, there's a real common uh, appreciation for the value of the space program, but there's also the idea that the astronauts are heroes that is even internalized by like the the black person on the street, right? And, and as such, with that value sort of baked into the movie and given sort of a little twinge of it being like not quite enough right i do think that that the hidden in the hidden figures is a is about how like these is about giving that esteem and giving that sort of character affirmation that you would give to astronauts also to these women right these black women right who themselves are heroes in this pursuit if this collective pursuit is worth anything then their individual contribution is also worth as much as the individual contribution of the astronauts it gets a little complicated i think the uh to this point of comparing and contrasting the woman hidden figures with the with the astronauts and the right stuff and for that matter other astronaut movies if i remember correctly it's been a few weeks since i've seen this movie uh the women the computer women get a version of the hero astronaut walk down the corridor right yep that's exactly yeah, 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 what that yeah, yeah. scene is. That's yes. exactly what that scene is. Great eye, Mark. Great eye. Right? Because there's this really famous scene in the right stuff where they all and they do it in Armageddon too. Yeah. Right? Oh, yes, they do it in Armageddon. <laughs> where they all walk oh, they down the, the hallway in slow motion. Yeah. And they totally shoot that when they're moving from the computer room to the computer room. Right? <laughs> I believe I lo- that's correct. Yes. Their major transition into the uh, into the electronic age. Yeah, um, they have the Ed Harris walk. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That was a nice touch Great. there. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I, 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 this is Pete. This is why I keep coming back to this podcast every week is because, you know, we find these um, hidden aspects of movies, if you were, <laughs> and illuminate them. Um, I want to take this conversation in a slightly different direction. And it's meditating on this uh, tension between individuals and institutions. Um, and I, I think it's something we talked about a lot in this podcast, but we uh, it's worth digging into a little bit here. Right. There is this paradox of sorts. Right. That. Um, to accomplish big things, you need collective action. You need people united in a common purpose and everybody working together, right? Uh, that being said, of course, you know, collective action is made up of individual actions. And oftentimes in these large collective efforts, you need rebels to break out of the status quo in order to get the breakthroughs, right? And we see that on both sides of this and the right stuff. Uh, it's, I haven't seen all of the right stuff. I'm roughly familiar with the outline of the story, which is that they have these crazy test pilots, essentially, who are big risk takers and rebels. Um, and they are the ones who become the astronauts because they're the only ones who are crazy enough to do this. You're a rebel, thing. John Glenn, but you get results. Right. <laughs> uh, and, and then I guess what we see here in Hidden Figures is a more, wait for it, down-to-earth version of it right where uh these women they rebel against the status quo right they break down the racial they help break down racial racial barriers um and they break out of the status quo of the thinking the group think um and uh and and that i i think matt is what you were referring to earlier the sort of uh push pull between the biopic format uh that really focuses on individual acts of heroism and the broader collective acts that they are serving. Am I getting that more or less correct? Yeah, I mean, that, that I, and I think it's an interesting, and what I want to say is I think it's a tension that makes this movie interesting. I don't think it's a defect in, in the way that, right. The, right, 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 right. that the, in the way that the story is told, but the idea that like every, you know, the, uh, a question, a, a film like this raises the question always of like, 
who are all the countless people left out of history, right? People who aren't honored with like build with, you know, buildings named after them by NASA, you know, uh, I mean, there, there's a building named after this woman by NASA, right? Like it's, uh, the, the, um, oh, I forget which, which character, the Taraji P. Henson character, I think, right? Like that, like for, for all of those, surely there must be, uh, untold uh, hordes of of hidden figures who are not, um, you know, who are not recognized by by history and who never will be because there's no biography, there's no you know uh, chance to to you know. I was reading I was reading the paper this morning. I was reading the New York Times this morning, and there is a uh, uh, history. Um, of early Mormonism uh, that I read about uh, b- that was based on kind of a concordance between a bunch of diaries that had just happened to survive the centuries, uh, the century and a half, roughly, right? Like that, that just happened to uh, just happened to sort of make it. And, and you think of all the sort of chance, uh, you think of all the, the, uh, ways in which knowledge can be lost to the sands of time, and especially, uh, the knowledge about something, um, so ephemeral, uh, ephemeral, Jesus, time to lay off the whiskey rather, mm-hmm. um, something so ephemeral as an individual life, uh, it, as voluminous as as universally large as an individual life um, can be said to be, with its whole uh, universe of experience contained contained within it, you think about how easily that stuff is lost, and and you sort of marvel at how many more uh, uh, hidden figures hidden figures there must be. And I think I, I you know I think with a, a sort of straight biopic. Well, not not exactly straight. I think I think by sort of subverting the biopic form by bringing in uh, some more collective types of activities, um, the, uh, the the the. Um, the film says something interesting about individual versus collective accomplishment, achievement. Um, and that like, uh, uh, to a certain extent at, at a certain, at a, at a large enough, uh, historical remove, all the figures are hidden and, uh, uh, you know, and, and that uh, that actually should be a basis for kind of radical identification, inclusion, and uh, uh, you know, compassion and fellow feeling, rather than for uh, maintaining the stringently policed um, prejudices of of your time. Anyway, the, uh, this was my read. Uh, uh, anyway, of of the kind of the meta the meta text of uh, of this movie. I don't know, Mark. Do, does that does it make sense what I what I'm what I'm trying to say and the kind of the tension that I saw inherent in this kind of story? Yeah, yeah. In a way, we are all hidden figures. In a way, <laughs> some are we're just not. Wait a minute, I'm not ready to go hashtag yes all hidden figures or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think the movie is is about obscurity in an abstract sense, right? I think the movie is in a concrete sense about this obscurity, right? Uh, um, and it is about that you. I guess I guess what I would say to sort of meet you meet you on this would be like Hidden Figures demonstrates that you could make a movie like the right stuff about a wide variety of people, right? But make no mistake, Hidden Figures is the one about these people, 
right? It, Hidden Figures is not the one about everybody. Now, Hidden Figures is not the one that says, you know, uh, John Glenn is not that special. Everybody's special. No, Hidden Figures is the one that says Katherine Johnson is special. Right. Right. Like and then there'll be other ones that say other people are special. Right. But but this is theirs. I mean, I would think that. Um, but the, say, the, like, point, the point I'm sorry, I don't mean to jump down, jump down your throat, no, Pete. No. I, but let me extract you from my throat. And uh, and and. Oh. <laughs> I, wait, what? <laughs> I need a mathematician to figure out what services were burned in that exchange. <laughs> but the, um, but the, uh, uh, I think, I think by saying, I think that the, that the claim that like this is the one. There are two claims. One, one is that uh, this is the one about how awesome uh, Catherine Johnson is, right? And uh, that a, a disservice has been done to her by not pointing out yeah. so far. Uh, right, right, right. How that's fair, yeah. It sort of raises the specter of who else we're doing a disservice to by not pointing out how, how awesome they are. That's, that's all I'm saying yeah. uh, about yeah, yeah, the kind right. of the, the uh, every figure is hidden to, to a certain extent. And, and it's, it's true. Not every, not every figure is hidden. And some figures are more, more exposed than others. But the... the um, but uh, every as yet unexposed figure is hidden, I, I suppose, and and more more are hidden uh, every every day that the sands of the hourglass, um, so akin uh, as they are to the days of our lives, fall through, uh, and uh, you know pool on the bottom there. That's uh, you know that's that's my point, I guess. Fair enough. Fair enough. Um, here's a here's a thought. Um, there's love plots in this movie. Yeah. Fair enough. There, no, it's, I mean, you're like, yeah, agreed. Sure, it happens. I'm like, no, no, no. I'm, I'm positing this as a topic. There are love plots in Hidden Figures. Yeah, there's yeah, no, no, no. You're, you're right. There's, there's love, there's love plots. That's great. Let's talk about astronauts some more. <laughs> are you, are you uncomfortable with the, the, the other meaning of figures in this movie? <laughs> moving, <laughs> which is that these are women and they are in women's bodies and they live women's lives mo- right and, moving, and they moving experience... right along all people contribute in uh, some in unique ways to the space program and uh... <laughs> i'm sorry i didn't i i thought sheldon was in the movie not on the podcast <laughs> but uh... <laughs> uh but but it's it's interesting to think about the in particular Catherine johnson's uh relationship right with i, I just want to call him uh, Cornell Stokes from Luke Cage, right? Uh, but he's also from House of Cards. But yeah, by the way, uh, Marshala Ali having a fantastic year. Uh, mm. Just like just has gotten some great roles this year and has killed it uh, in in Luke Cage in um, Moonlight in this like this is I honestly this is sort of his year I think uh, just in terms of the variety and the quality of work that that he has turned in. Definitely, Luke Cage was tons better when he was in it. Yeah, de- uh, yeah, he he was one of the best things about Luke Cage, <laughs> and there was some good stuff. But 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 yeah, the, but he's but it's interesting to consider what's his role in this movie. It's and part of it is that um, when you think about what this movie would be like if there were a male pra- protagonist, there would have to be a girl, right? Right there, have the Top Gun has to have Charlie, even though she her material contribution to the air fight with the mysterious sort of Soviets, which seems to be somewhat the conclusion of Top Gun. Right, like it's 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 somewhat dubious. Right, like how exactly does uh, Maverick banging his teacher move the story forward? Right, uh, but uh, 
Um, Maverick, but, Maverick is not a protagonist in the way that I mean. I guess he he makes a decision to go below the hard deck. Never mind. Moving on. <laughs> um, yeah, the the F fourteen is the protagonist. The, the, plane, the, mili- the, the military. Plane is the, girl. the military industrial complex is the protagonist. <laughs> the protagonist is the is the the check that his butt is trying to cash. Not his butt trying to cash the check. No, the point being that uh, in ma- in taking a story about something like the space program or the military and making it into a personal story, you want to add personal stakes in order to complete that sort of translation, right? And that's part of making the story a melodrama. That's part of the making st- the story something that will evoke the emotions you want it to evoke. And also it's part about coming to understand uh, the, I suppose, what, the tenor of the story through the vehicle of the hero. Right, I, I guess might be one way of saying it that if the story is really supposed to teach you something about the space program, then there, then it teaches it to you through not just the experiences of the characters with the space program, or say the space program in the context of the '60s. Right, it teaches you things not just about the scenes with that in it, but about everything else. Right, like like we learn, you know. Um, I mean, gosh, I, I immediately lean towards Back to the Future, and I was like, no, that's too complicated. We can't get into that. But in terms of movies where there is a main storyline that has material concrete stakes and then there is a big love plot, which uh, has a, a an association with it, mostly in terms of what it makes you think or feel about the main character and the main character's personal journey. Right. Because this was about a woman who had a dead husband. Right. So she'd sort of given up hope. And she had given up a sense of this form of actualization, this form of happiness in her life, right? She she had her children and she lived for her children, but she didn't really live for herself. Uh, she didn't have a, a partner, right? And she didn't get the, the enjoyments, someone to dance with, someone to love her, right? Um, she had her children, which is, of course, you know, not to be shortchanged, but it, it is not enough uh, just to be a mother, to be a person. Right. Um, It is not enough just to be an astronaut, to be a person or even to be a brilliant. It is not enough to be a goodwill hunting character, to be a person. Right. Uh, To further sort of like hang the specter of past uh, entertainment over this movie. But but the idea that that she comes into her own as a as a sort of renewed and revived uh, sexual person at the same time that she comes into her own as a a sort of scion uh, of a sort of legacy of of kind of repressed oppressed suppressed right like uh if you if you consider Katherine johnson alongside or in the long line of black women who are not appreciated for their talents and and their and their ability to work in in challenging fields uh and advance the human race in meaningful ways through excellence right if you consider that that racism slavery oppression jim crow segregation all of these things uh, removed or or not if not removed then certainly inhibited you know it's certainly not more than inhibited between inhibited and removed pick a word right uh, one that, that has a very intense shade of meaning but one that is not entirely exclusionary but but it's like a death right like the loss the loss of of excellence the loss of the ability the loss of the autonomy and the dignity uh, that is accompanied by excellence 
right? Which which is forced upon the black American by slavery, by segregation, by Jim Crow, is like a death. It's it's sort of like she, the, the the black experience is that of the widow who is who is sort of seeking a new rebirth of their own sort of full actualization. I was just I'm just trying to come up with what is going on. I mean, yes, it's a true yeah, story. I mean, right? I think you it's just hit the nail on the head right there. What you just said. That's that pretty deep. Just, yeah, yeah. No, no, yeah. no. The, the 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 story of uh, of the, the loss, right, and and, and the incompleteness uh, yeah. that uh, of the Black American experience. Yeah. Yeah. Which, and again, I don't want to shortchange it because it's not my experience, right? My experience yeah. is of yeah, the yeah, German yeah. who didn't want to be in a war and so ended up being in three more wars. Uh, which you know we're more happy about the war for oh. more happy about the wars we were in because we're on the right side of a lot of them. Uh, but uh, but but you know running up that hill in Fredericksburg is not an easy thing to do. To do it twice is also not an easy thing to do for any immigrant. But the point being that uh, yeah, the point being that when uh, Catherine Johnson gets to dance with you know Marshala uh, is that how it's pronounced Marshala Ali. Uh, uh, as far as as far as I know, it's probably not. Uh, it's it's spelled Mahershala Ali. Uh, yeah, so I, yeah. I'm kind of alighting a I'm syllable call there. Him Cornell, Cornell Stokes. Uh, he, I mean, he's he's awesome, and I, I and I don't want to get his name wrong. But when they get to sort of dance together and revel together, there's a sense of celebration in that that feels similar to the sense of celebration of like the women going to the computer room and the sense of the celebration of like being given the backstage pass to get to watch the astronauts, right? Mm-hmm. Like it's like you get to participate in life fully right fully and you didn't do it because somebody let you you did it because you were good enough right and that's really what it is is that she does it because she's good enough because she's given the opportunity to be in this relationship and not be thought to be good enough and she rejects it and i think that is a very important part of katherine johnson's character arc in this movie in that she refuses to be in that sexual relationship as a subordinate person she must be appreciated for how good she is Right. It's not about a favor that Kevin Costner did. Like, yes, Kevin, we all love that Kevin Costner knocked the sign off the the bathroom. Right. But it's not about Kevin Costner doing you a favor. It's about you being so good that you make Kevin Costner do you that favor. Mm. Right. Um, well, it's not a favor at that point. It's him. No. It's his self-interest at that point. Yeah. Right? Like, you make Kevin Costner do that thing that, that you that you benefit from. Yeah. And right? that, that, I mean, that, that offers you that acknowledges you your dignity. Right. And, and all that stuff, which is a pre- I mean, I think there are a lot of things that are sort of genuinely and almost kind of subversively uh, progressive uh, about that. And that's uh, about this movie. And that's that's one of them. The idea that, like, you know what, like the dominant culture benefits. You know, when, (laughs) right. (laughs) When, when, uh, uh, you, you eliminate your, uh, dehumanizing, um, and illegitimate, uh, 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 Right, uh, racism or or uh, bigotry of of whatever kind. Um, the other part is in that is actually in that like uh, by meeting a, a second husband, there there is a sense at least in in the terms of the story. And I you know I know it's about a, a, a real person, right? And like real people's lives are less about grand themes than they are about just kind of making it from day to day and trying to be happy uh, <laughs> under the under the the circumstances. Um, so you know when we talk about this, we're talking about a bio pick and not about uh, like an actual person's sort of life or decisions or, or things like that. And I think that's an important distinction to make, but, but there's, uh, there's almost something, uh, there's almost something um, uh, very subversive in terms of like, there is an excellence. 
There is an excellence as a mother and a wife and a person participating in a marriage, and there's an excellence as a mathematician, and those two things are related to to one another, right? Like the the partnership between uh, between her and her new husband is better because he recognizes her excellence as, as a mathematician. And that's actually something that I think that, like, uh, I think that that... I, you know, I think that a lot of putatively feminist uh, uh, cinema that I see um, rejects the idea of uh, or looks at the idea of, of family or of kind of like what we might call kind of conventional happiness as as an obstacle to progress rather than as being potentially uh, uh, fulfilling or ennobling in in some way. And and like I think one of the greatest honors that this movie does to the people in it is by kind of m- m- t- treating them as people who have different facets of their lives, you know, that are all related, uh, and that, that are all important, you know, uh, it's, it's not like, um, yeah, I, what I'm saying is that, that, uh, uh, the, the, I'm sure that Catherine Johnson, I'm sure that Taraji B. Henson, P. Henson has a better home life than the Jim Parsons character in this, <laughs> uh, in this movie. And that's part of why she's so great. I don't know. I think we've revealed the hidden figure, so it might be time to uh, to um, call a uh, 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 call a stop to to this particular episode of the podcast. But guys, I'm excited to see more Oscar contenders. Uh, I don't know about you, um, but I I think it might be a little much to uh, to dedicate an entire podcast to everyone. So let's. Um, Let's uh let's do this. Let's uh do little capsule segments on some of the more interesting uh Oscar contenders. If if we go on too long with any of them, we'll get an orchestra to play us off. Uh <laughs> let's let's uh let's aim to talk about at least one uh most of the weeks between now and the uh and and the podcast. What do you think? Can we do that? Do we have the right stuff? <laughs> I think we do. I think I like this idea a lot. I think this is a great idea. Definitely. All right. Um all right. So we'll we'll just peek in on an Oscar uh an Oscar nominated film um most of the weeks between now and uh now and the ceremony itself where we will have our uh our storied uh Oscar uh, Oscar podcast, uh, d- 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 with the exception probably of of Super Bowl week, because we all know what we do for that. Man, what an exciting, uh, what an exciting month, month and a half coming up for all of us. Thank you, Mark and Pete, for being a part of it, and thank you, listeners, for hanging out for it. Uh, we'll be back next week with more Overthinking It podcast. Till then, visit us on the web at overthinkingit.com, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny. It, it probably, probably doesn't. doesn't. Deserve. Deserve.